Everybody, welcome back to another episode of Papa Progressive. As always, I'm joined by my co-host Eduardo, my father. Hey, hello, everybody. Always with um, the slow hello. Yeah, yeah. Hey, right. yeah, well, well, I'm glad everyone's on, and uh, you know, hopefully, listening to the to the podcast today. Yes. Today, we're going to be talking a little bit about the debates, and but our main topic is going to mostly be about wealth distribution and what our thoughts on wealth distribution is and how maybe what, what, what we think of as ways to kind of uh, deal with that in America and our different perspectives on it, because I'm pretty sure that we'll find places where we both agree and disagree heavily on this, so... Yeah, I'm sure. Without further ado, let's do it. I'll, I'll hand it over to you to kind of talk about this stuff because I know this is something that's kind of important to you. Right, right. All right. So wealth distribution in America, what does that mean? All right. So many times what we hear, especially in the media, okay, is we hear the reference to the top. 20% and the top 1% of Americans and and we hear uh, them say um, that it's that top 20%, that top 1% of Americans that own most of the wealth in this country, you know and so I guess that the question is, is it true, right is it true and uh, this, that's one question. The other question is, you know, then if, if that is true, then what is everybody? So that we, we figure there's about 330 million people here. Let's just average it out in America, right? So what is the breakdown for of income, you know? And so um, let's start with some of the basic stuff first, right? Mm-hmm. And that is that, um, it's true that the top, you know, 20% of Americans um, pretty much own all of the wealth uh, or most of the wealth in this country, all right? Uh, and the, and the, believe it or not, just like they're the top 20%, well, guess what? They own 80% of the wealth in America, basically. You know, that top 20%, and of course, 1% of those um own a even higher percentage of the wealth when it comes to um, to how this whole thing plays out. But let's look at um, uh, something called uh, the percentages here of uh, population in reference to um, what this population has in terms of wealth. Okay, so the top four percent of Americans, right? Is, and within that, obviously, is that 1%. So let, let's start with that top 1%, actually. That top 1% of 
the American population. So if you do a quick calculation, Eduardo, what is 1% of 30 million, 330 million people? Of 330 million people, that's 3,300,000 people. Okay, so 3,300,000 people account for that 1% of Americans, and they technically own 43% of the wealth of our country. Okay? And so we're talking about all wealth, right? Um, we're talking about property. We're talking about investments. We're talking about actual dollars. We're talking about businesses. We're talking about the whole gamut. Okay? They own 43%, according to, to the United States um, government, uh, who has done, obviously, a breakdown of, of what the wealth distribution in America is. Now, the following 4% of Americans, so what's 4% of 330 million people? 4% mm, of that? Yeah, 4% of 330 million people. Okay. Well, Just do the quick math there. 330. Because that 4% that you're going to come up with a number, all right, that's 4% of that that's of population. 13 yep. million 200 people. 200,000. Okay, so 14 million 200,000. 13 million 200,000. Okay, so 13 million 200,000 people in yes. America own 29% of the wealth of our nation. That's 29%. I mean, that's a big number. That's an astounding number, correct? And no matter how you slice it. I mean, 43% was, you know, almost twice that amount. So what we're seeing is that a smaller number of Americans actually have a disproportionate amount of wealth uh, that, they, that, that they have, that they own, basically, and control in our country. Now, the following 19% of Americans, okay, um, owns approximately 21% of the wealth of our country. Okay? Now we have the, at the bottom. Now that's the top 20% of Americans. Okay? Uh, combined. All right? The way they have this chart broken out. They, they comprise the top 20% of the population. The bottom 80% of the population. How much of the wealth of, of our country do you think that they own? Probably the like... Number would, the, huh? What? No. What are you saying? The number will blow your mind. The percentage will blow your mind. Like 30%? But if you had, yeah, right. 30%. That's what most people, believe it or not, believe. That 80% of the population own 30% of the wealth. But we already said that 19% actually own 21%, and out of that, out of the top 20%, okay, 4% own 29%, which is close to 30%, and 1% own 43% of the world. The bottom 80% of Americans, which is the majority of the population in our, in our nation, so what's 80% of our population? If you don't mind doing the math real quick. Uh, time 
So eight two hundred and sixty-four million people. Okay, so guess what? Two hundred and sixty-four million Americans own seven percent of the wealth of this country. That's eighty percent of the population. That's the majority of Americans. What that tells me, and what that what the government already knows, obviously is that not only is wealth distribution in America way out of whack, all right, but our perceptions, just like you said, 80%, oh, I think they own 30% of the wealth, right? But that's actually a, a, a real figure in that most Americans, if you were to ask them the same question, they would probably give the same percept, the, the same answer or response that 80% of the population owns 30% of the wealth. And no, it isn't like that. It's, the numbers are even worse than that, you know? I mean, and so why is this important? Well, the reason why it's important is that if 80% of the population owns only 7% of the wealth, all right, what that really tells me, okay, is that these folks who represent the majority, the 80% who represent the majority of Americans in this country, are all splitting 7% among each other, all right? That's 260 plus million people, all right, that are in dire straits in America right now. They're not even a middle class. They're not even considered the middle class. And why do I say that? And the reason why I say that is because they, the majority of the, the medium household income in America, all right, is, is you know, $50,000 a year, you know? And that's what most Americans, so that 260 plus million people are, are making $50,000 a year or less in income, in income. That top 20%, those are the guys that are making a million or more. And only that 1% is probably now, that 19% and that and that 4% that I, that I said represented or, or, or owned, um, you know, that 29% uh, percent of the wealth and that 21% combined, right? So the, the 19% and the 4%. Those are the people that are only earning uh, between upwards of $50,000, but up to a million dollars a year. That's that 19% that has that 21% of the wealth. So those are the, those are the folks who, are, who work for companies that are executives and uh, middle management and folks like that, you know, that maybe earn you know, some of them may earn on the lower end, you know, 80,000, 60,000, 70,000, 100,000. And maybe on the higher end, you know, some of them are earning in excess of half a million dollars. And of course, anywhere in between. And then maybe a, an even smaller percentage of those is earning a million dollars or more, right? But it's the 4% that owns that 29% of the wealth in this country that's actually earning the million dollars or more. Yet that 1% that owns, you know, 43% of the population, of the uh, population, of the income or the wealth in our nation, they're 
the ones that are making the millions and the hundreds of millions of dollars in America. So why would this be of, why do you think this would be of any significance or importance to anyone? Why would anyone want to know? You know, or why would anyone care? Right? And I think that the reason why I care is because it tells a story. What, what it tells us is that that um, if the majority of the people in America are, are sharing 7% of the wealth, all right, it means that the majority of people in this country are really struggling day to day, some more than others, obviously. Because if you're earning, if you have two income, so back in the day, right, when I was a kid, I was a young man, um, I had, actually, when I was a child, you were able to support a family on an income, on a factory income of $60 a week. You know, and of course, with inflation, those amounts went rising. But even in the, in the early 70s and up to the mid-70s, a factory worker didn't earn more than 120 bucks a week. And that was with overtime. You know, um, which 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 is is telling because these are what we're talking about working families, right? So nowadays, if the if the medium income uh, that that folks are earning is fifty grand, all right, um, and folks it, like most families in America, in order to live uh, or even to to pretend to live, we'll say, all right, a middle-class lifestyle, all right? Two things need to happen, all right? First, you need two incomes in the family, and you're hoping that both parties in that, in that relationship are earning $50,000 a year gross. Obviously, after taxes, that's probably more like $30,000 a year apiece. So maybe their net income is about 60 grand between the both of them. Okay, but it takes both of those persons to work in a family in order to support a family of not four like back in the day, but just a family of two, meaning mother, you know, father, mother, and children, and two children. All right, that's how much it takes to, to, to raise and, uh, a, uh, you know, to have a family and run a household in America. All right, and even then, what you're doing is that you're forcing uh, these folks to borrow as much as they make or earn um, in order to subsidize that lifestyle. Okay, so... You borrow for a home, obviously, and you borrow for a vehicle, right? Everyone has a, a car note, and and some people have a house note as well, okay? But we know statistically, um, and you might want to look this up. Maybe you can spit the percentage out. How many? What percentage of Americans own a home, right? If you look that up. Um, that is very telling of, of what's going on in America right now, you know, because I think that we can look at, at the trends and we 
we know that after the, the bubble in 2008, you know, many families lost their homes, you know. And, and if that was what, what, what happened, you know, 22 years ago, well, I'm sorry, 22 years, 12 years ago, okay? 64.8% of, Ameri- of the U.S. population is homeowners. Are homeowners, okay? So, um, so how many, um, almost 65%. So Okay, so let's take 65% of the population of homeowners. How many people is that? So 65% of 330 million, we'll average it out, because we know there's a little bit more than that uh, when the U.S. Census uh, completes their their count in, in coming, you know, during this year. We're 214,000, 214,500,000. People. Yeah. Owners. 214 million. That means, right, that a hundred, that another hundred and sixteen million people in America are renters; they're not homeowners, right? Yeah. It also means that the folks that own homes that are included in that two hundred fourteen million count. If we, if we look at wealth distribution, many of those homeowners are actually at the bottom rung of the income uh, strata, if you will, when it comes, you know, when we're looking at wealth distribution in America. They're not all wealthy people, in other words. They're probably people that have two, dual income and that are earning anywhere between uh, 70 and $70,000 a year and up, right? Because that's about what it takes to own a home in most parts of this country. So even if you were, if you went down south and, and you purchased a home that was an $80,000 home, okay, you're going to need at least 60000 to $70,000 a year to actually be able to mortgage that house with good credit. That's just, just what it is. I mean, there are areas of this country where you can actually buy a home and afford to pay the mortgage if you have good credit um, on, on, on $30,000 a year. But guess what? Those are places like uh, cities in the Rust Belt, like Gary and Dayton, Ohio, and Milwaukee and Cincinnati and uh, places like that up in the Rust Belt region, all right, uh, where, the, where the economy is, even though is doing better than what it was during the 2008 recession, all right, uh, those areas of the countries are still economically depressed and are actually still uh, have unemployment rates in excess of 5% when the rest of the country is faring so much better. I mean, there's places in this country
Um, um, go ahead. Hold on. So, when I tell you and I give you the and I share these percentages with you, how does it make you feel about um, about wealth distribution in America? I okay. So I don't. So if I'm looking at just the percentages of like how much um, the top one percent, top twenty percent owns or whatever, right? Because to get into yeah. the top one, to be qualified as top one percent, you only have to earn like on the upper end of like four hundred million, four hundred thousand dollars a year. Correct. Yeah, four hundred thousand um, dollars. But but alienating that right, mm-hmm. if I just see like oh the top seven, the top twenty percent owns like the top owns like ninety percent of the wealth in America, right? That's not. I don't see that as a problem. What that I the top twenty percent own. No, because they're because they're top twenty percent, and you're thinking about like how many. And and we already went over like if there's that many people making what are ridiculous amounts of money, varying from like four hundred plus thousand dollars a year to like places that to like people that rake in something like a hundred million dollars a year, right? Mm-hmm. And. I, I'm like, okay, that's not – I just alienating that, I don't think that's an issue. What I think becomes an issue is when if, if, if no if, – if like the top – if the bottom 80%, right, depending on who they are, it has more to do whether or not if that 7% that they're splitting is enough to live on. That's where, because right. I'm not. I can't just look at like, oh, exactly. the top one percent own the like, right. whatever. Well, I'm like, oh no, duh, well, because they're all rich. <laughs> right. Well, look at it in this context. All right. About two hundred million Americans, or roughly forty percent of the country, make less than twenty thousand dollars a year. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, in in in. In the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, is is a good. We know that many of those folks that are earning twenty thousand dollars a year live in Massachusetts. Obviously, they're spread throughout fifty states, right? Mm-hmm. But we know that some of those actually live in Massachusetts. Yeah. Right. In order for you to be able to survive on twenty thousand dollars a year, all right, you have to have subsidized housing, food stamps, your medical needs to be paid for, and and you're probably also needing to run and use the food bank every once in a while to be able to survive on $20,000 a year. See, I would – here's the thing though. I don't, I don't know if I would say that that's a fair um, state to use in as, as an example though because we're okay. like – one of the top ten most expensive states in the country to live in. Exactly, my, but that's exactly my point, right? Because we're also we're we're not only one of the top uh, uh, most more expensive states to reside in, all right. 
but when we look at population distribution throughout the United States, all right, what we find is that the states where it's less expensive to live mm -hmm. are also less are also less populated mm -hmm. because of the phenomena of people uh, migrating to cities to work. Yeah, and then migrating north to northern cities to work, and then of course you had the phenomena of folks, you know, migrating back south. But the number of micro of folks migrating back south in the other direction um, hasn't yet reached the number of folks that actually migrated north. Mm -hmm. And so when we look at the more populous areas of the country, those are actually the more expensive places to live in. California is a, is a classic example. It's very expensive to live in California. You know, and they have what. Uh, you know, for, they have the sixth largest economy in the world, okay? And uh, and they have, I don't know, what, 39% of the population in this country or something like that. I mean, you can look up the percentages. I know they're up there in terms of population. They're the most populous state in, of, the, of the union, obviously, all right? But when you look at $20,000, I'm going to tell you, $20,000, um, you know, the, the fair statement is that when you look at the fact that the federal guidelines, mm -hmm. all right, state that you should be paying 35 percent, 35 to 36 percent, and no more than that of your wages, of your gross wages, in housing or toward housing, all right, then would, and knowing what the rent, what the average rent in Massachusetts probably, you know, twelve hundred to fourteen hundred dollars, somewhere in that range, could be higher by now. All right, uh, you can you can't possibly possibly live uh, on, on twenty thousand dollars a year. You'd have to share, you have to share an apartment with with, with uh, at least one or two other people in order to be able to afford to live there. And to have money to eat, and to have, and to be able to save, and to be able to do those kinds of things that you need to do in order to move up the socioeconomic ladder in this country. You know, I mean, 200 million people out of 300 million, you know, 300 plus million people. That's a lot of people to be earning, you know, twenty thousand dollars a year or less. You know, um, you know, eighteen. 0.2% of households, all right, earned 16.5% of all income. And, the, and households with the annual with annual incomes uh, from 50000 to $95,000 represent only 28.1% of total households. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now here we have uh, yet another percentage of folks that are earning between fifty and seventy-five thousand dollars a year, and I can almost bet you that many of those households that are earning between fifty and seventy-five thousand dollars a year are dual-income households for the most part. You know, and and so again, uh, with the rate, with with the with the way things are going in this country in terms of um, in terms of cost of living, cost of rental housing because you know if, if you can't afford to rent and you have to um, 
subsidize your, right, your rent by renting out a room in your home to either to a family member or even a stranger, which a lot of people, many people are doing that nowadays as a, as a way of subsidizing uh, their rent, having the ability to afford where they're living, you know? Um, what that tells me is that then, then it's, an, you know, it, it's difficult for you and you have to be creative and, and find an additional source of income in order to supplement what you're already earning in order for you to be able to live where you're living. So here's my question for you yeah, to kind of move this along. Mm-hmm. What are proposed solutions that you think we should do to All right, so, so solutions to, to help alleviate the situation of income distribution? Or make the cost of living more affordable for people, or at right. least make the either the cost of what do we have? What do, what do you think we should do economically to either make the cost of living more affordable for people, or make or okay. a lot or find a way to get people to get higher wages right. so that will allow is, them to is, to live in these. So places. it's a dichotomy, right? And I'll tell you why because because what we have is a situation where we know corporations do not want to pay anyone that isn't an upper executive a large amount of money, all right? For um, obvious reasons. Fact. Right, but it's a fact, right? Yeah. And so, and so because of that, uh, wages over the past 30, 40 years have remained flat, essentially. There's been marginal, very, very little growth in, in real wages in the past 40 years, especially for those folks that are at the bottom of the social economic strata. All right? And so what we need to do is change, well, let's put it like this. Our, the way that we are doing business now in our country and not caring about enough to say to them here's an adequate amount of pay or I can't afford to pay you that much but here's but but let me help you at housing okay and let me supplement that little bit of income that you're getting with other programs well we've tried to do that but the fact is that politically it isn't a popular thing right we know that we've seen uh, billion dollar cuts to the SNAP programs, to the welfare programs, and also to the even, even the um, even Social Security, which is a which is not even an entitlement. It's a program that we pay into from our paychecks, and even those programs have been cut by billions, and in some cases, hundreds of billions of dollars, um, by the folks who lead our nation, and the proposals for more cuts continue to come, yet on the other end of the spectrum, right, those very same people claim that providing those folks who have the majority of the wealth in our nation, all right, um, tax cuts because their money goes into the creation of jobs, right? So we're trying to balance things here in a way that that 
takes away, if you will, that sense of humanity, you know, that caring for our fellow man, if you will, our fellow well, citizen. Well, here's the thing. So you want to know what the libertarian response to that would be? What, what's that? It would be to just have to cut all those programs entirely. Okay. So that way, none of us are paying absorbent high taxes, right? To pay for things uh-huh. that we that especially people who aren't using it, right? Don't even have to don't aren't even using, right? Right. So you cut out the cost of people and corporations having to pay taxes on things that don't affect them and stop doing things like union, right? Unions. So if there's like union busting, then you're driving down the cost of productivity for corporations, right? And you're driving down taxes for everybody by cutting programs. Right. Okay, and then cool. in so doing... let me ask you this. Okay, okay. All right, so let me ask you this. I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Okay. All right. How many people, how many Americans... Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm going to do this myself here for a minute because I think it's important to, um, to make note of this. How many Americans don't work for one reason or another, either retirement, uh, disability, inability to work, you know, for one reason or another, right? Mm-hmm. What do we, what do we do with, with those people who, um, who are not productive, uh, and, and legitimately productive. I don't care if it's addiction or, um, or, uh, disability or, or something else, but what percentage of, of the U S population, uh, is not working? Do you have a number? I'm looking right now. Okay. So we know that, that roughly 20, that, that, that there's roughly about 21% poverty in America. All right. So, so, so what would be 21% of our population? But 21% poverty doesn't mean 21% people aren't working. No, I, I get that. I get that. But let's take that, let's, let's take that number to start with. All right. 21% of the population. And out of that 21%, we're going to, we're going to say that now these are people who are poor. All right, we can we can fairly say that that half of them, all right, are people who are out of work and not working. Okay, and and the and, and we're talking about in this case we we can't even count the uh, the elderly, you know, um, which is which is a, another dynamic altogether because these people have many of them have worked their whole lives. And are now collecting an entitlement uh, that they paid into, you know, for their, uh, throughout life. Okay, okay. You know, so that okay. So I'm I'm reading something on Politifact about this. Okay. There, that means there's like twenty. Okay, so if you, I'm so this is counting people who are of normal working age, not in college, and not working. Mm-hmm. Um. That's only 20 million people. 20 million people. 20 million people. Okay. That are not working. 
that are not working well, are and are of normal working age and not in college. Okay, and not in college, and that doesn't count. Now that twenty million obviously does not count people who are disabled, right? It doesn't count people who have reached who are sixty five or older have reached retirement age, people who are enrolled in two or four year colleges and people ages sixteen and seventeen. Okay. Okay, so that's twenty million people. Let's start with that twenty million people. What happens to that twenty million people who are not working and cannot find jobs for whatever reason? Okay. Because there's in a capitalist system structure like ours, there always has to be a certain degree of unemployed. Okay? Now you cut out all the programs. Mm-hmm. All right? They have zero income coming in, zero food stamps, zero medical. Because you cut, you know, the libertarians would cut all those programs, right? Mm-hmm. And, and reduce, and reduce the, the tax rates of everybody else so that uh, so that those programs are now that are that are currently helping millions of Americans, and I know that I know those programs help in excess of forty million American families. All right, um, what ha- what do we do with those people? So How do we justify. So we let them start to them. So here's the thing. Mm-hmm. Then the argument would then be because we've done all those cuts. Businesses start expanding. They would be opening more. They, there would be opening more locations, and then more jobs would therefore be created. So that number would drop. Well, That's only twenty million well, because of what we have right now. Okay, listen. The truth of the matter is that we have we had an expanding economy for the past um, ten years. Mm-hmm. Okay, we've had the lowest unemployment rates. Okay, in history. Yeah. All right. And who, and a, an unemployment rate of three point seven percent or six percent at its lowest actually of the population. Now we're talking about how how are unemployment numbers figured out? Well, they're figured out basically on people who are collecting an unemployment check and then no longer collecting an unemployment check. All right, they're counting actual workers uh, versus people who are collecting unemployment checks. They're not counting everyone else. Who isn't? Who doesn't have a job for whatever reason? Mm-hmm. Uh, be it that they're on public assistance, be it that they're on disability, uh, be it that they have no income. Period. They just they, they they could be homeless on the street. Okay, none of those people are counted. Yet we have a three point six percent unemployment rate at at its lowest in America. All right, then now these mm-hmm. now but that, but but those people three point six percent unemployment okay. are people who are collecting an unemployment check mm-hmm. usually and are unable to find replacement work during that period of time, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. Right? But we know obviously we know that, that people will enter and exit the market, the, the labor market. Yeah. You know, periodically. Yeah. All right, but if but if that percentage remains constant, what is three point six percent of our population? I'm doing it right. Right. Yeah, yeah. Figure that out because that three point six percent of our population represents people who are uh, having a difficult time at at entering the labor market or have lost their job. It's about reason. It's if I'm rounding up, it's twelve million people. Okay, that's twelve million people. That's a lot of people. Mm-hmm. To have unemployed at any given time, 
growing a healthy economy or an expanding economy, why do we don't we have zero unemployment? Oh, our population is humongous. That's the thing. So okay, that well, so, so if we so we so we have to look at proportions though. We have to look at percentages. Like eleven million people, that sounds big and scary. But then again, like you said, that's only three point six percent of people. And then how many of those people are unemployed because of faults of their own? How many of those people are unemployed mm-hmm. because they're addicted to drugs, right? No, no, not no, to no, say no. That not, three point, no, no. That's, let's back up because that three Oh, we're talking about people who are collecting unemployment. These are direct, okay. They only okay. count people who are collecting unemployment. Right? Okay. They don't count so this is, everyone else. So this is people who are collecting unemployment. How many of those people have decided to up and move in order to find in order to move where jobs are? How many? What percentage? Many of, of them do. Many of many of them do. I know that some people don't. You know that people are, uh, you know, feel comfortable in certain areas, and, and that's where they've always lived. That they're, you know, there there's a psychological factor to upping and moving somewhere where you don't know anyone with, and you don't have anything. You know, it's kind of hard to do. Um, but the, the point is, is, the point I'm trying to make is this. Mm-hmm. That drawing an expanding economy, there's always, even at its best, all right, even at its best, mm-hmm. a consistent 3.6%, 7% of the population is unemployed. All right? That's a lot of people to be unemployed in a nation. So how, you know, even if we, if we cut... Uh, the the effective tax rate for 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 corporations to zero, that would not guarantee that there that we would ever have full employment in America, and I mean full employment. I don't think full employment. I don't think person. I don't think full employment anywhere is possible, unless you exactly. decide to, unless you decide to do a socialist or a communist government where you're just right. manufacturing the creation of jobs mm-hmm. when you're artificially manufacturing right. the creation of jobs. And exactly my point. Exactly. But who would want to live in that? That you can never, right? That you can never have full employment in a, in in a capitalist system, right? And so, does the libertarian model work and resolve the issues? It, they don't. It actually initially creates many problems because now not only do you have that that twelve million people who are consistently unemployed during a good economy, during the expanding economy. You have the folks who are addicts, the folks who have mental illness, the folks who are poor, the women who are at home trying to raise little children, you know, and all of that. You, 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 the disabled, you have all of those folks, all right, that you're going to leave without benefits and without housing, all right, because you're cutting all of those programs. Where do you, what do you do with those people? You just don't throw them out on the street to fend for themselves. So, so the libertarian model doesn't work. As so, far as I'm well, concerned. so, so what? So basically, with the libertarian model, all it's saying is it's up to the people to decide what to do. It's not. It's not the government's job because the government's job is to is to protect our borders, right? The government's a necessary evil that we have to have in order to like have minimal levels of order and structure, right, for the country to work. 
But then where do we talk about charities coming in to help those people, right? That's where that's where that comes in. If pe- if it, if that's something if that's something that's really important for people, right? If taking care of the homeless people, if taking care of the drug addict people, if that's something that's really important for people, right? People will do that on their own. It's not the job of the government to steal money from everybody else to help those people. You're leaving that to chance, all right? And let's let's talk about now charities. Charities in America, and we can look at most charities, are paying their executives and their and their staff very good, healthy wages for the most part. Mm-hmm. And studies have been done where less than twenty percent of a dollar donated actually reaches the intended population that you're trying to help. Everything else is overhead. Salaries, rents, and everything else. Mm -hmm. Benefits for for staff and all of that stuff. So the charities are are, are consistently not meeting the goals of being able to help the numbers of people that they claim that they want to help because of the overhead that they have. You know, mm-hmm. a very small percentage of the dollars that they actually raise actually goes to create a benefit from which the targeted population can actually benefit from. Yeah, because they here's have a, to... Here's another example. Yeah, well, hold on, hold on. Because they have to run it, right? Yeah. But, so, what, so, what would, so what would allow people... To be a, so so people want to people want to feel good and donate to charities, right? They want to so they can feel like they're helping people or whatever, right? What would make that more possible than to alleviate all the stress of taxes off of them? Then they have more money for themselves that they can do with to do whatever they want with, and that would include donating to charities. Yeah, but again. It's the, the charities are running on a formula. The mm-hmm. charities don't pay taxes. So they're running on a formula already, mm-hmm. all right, where they're benefit, where they're actually creating some jobs and good-paying jobs at that. Yeah. Uh, but but they're not fulfilling the the goals or, the, you know, of the charity, all right? They're, they're really not. They're falling way short of what they're supposed to be. Yeah, because but that's because they rely on funding from willing people who want to. So if everybody else has less financial stress from things like taxes or corporations have less financial stress from things like unions, then there's more money that's going to go everywhere including charities. And then it doesn't it doesn't and then it doesn't matter what the percentages that uh the charities are of that dollar that has to go that has to go where, right? For overhead costs and then whatever else goes to what to like the thing that benefit that directly benefits the people, right? Because there's more money there anyway now because of that. Yeah, and I would venture to say that it would what would happen is that the charities would would initially take a lot of that money that's now available and it would go into payroll. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it will go into payroll. So, so the so the charity the, so the so the executive director of the of the charitable organization or the CEO mm-hmm. who could be earning.
earning, let's say, four hundred thousand dollars a year. In some instances, many of them earn around hundred thousand, hundred twenty, for smaller organizations. All right, they will probably boost themselves up to to a nice, healthy, you know, half a million dollars if they could, and they would boost the incomes of of some of their employees, at least the middle management portion of it of them. Um, as well, all right, and you would still wind up in the same situation where they would not be, they would, they would still be falling short of their targets uh, to help people. You know, that that in, that in other words, I would venture to say, and I'm just playing devil's advocate here because you know, human human behavior is very tough. All right, and we live in a society where there's a lot of greed. Okay, and because of it. Um, uh, and a classic example would be the big bailout to the banks. Um, you know, during 2008, 2009, the first thing they did was pay the bonus, their bonuses out to, to their employees and themselves mm-hmm. with that money, with that money that they, that they got from the government, which was our tax dollar. Yeah. You know, which, which to me, uh, says, uh, a couple of things. First of all, the government made a mistake in handing that money over because that money was intended to bail out the organization, not intended for bonuses and wage increases. Yeah. And they should and they should have had the foreseeability, all right, to stick into that agreement. We're giving this to you for the bailout and the intended use is not for you to buy a new freaking corporate jet, all right, and give yourself and your employees bonuses. Yeah. Okay. So so we go back to to what are we going to do with all of these people? We're talking we're talking in excess of, of a sixth of our population, and if we're taking raw numbers, two thirds of the population in America are working poor. Two thirds of the people in America are working poor or poor. Well, let's lump them all together. Are working poor or poor? People that are just barely making it. So if you give them ta- tax, the, the, the tax, first of all, I think we, we need to recognize that under the current tax code, a lot of these people really don't pay taxes. They get taxes withheld from them, from their payroll, right, checks. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the year, many of them get that back in the form of a refund. And they only don't get that back. They get credit for deductions and what have you, and therefore even get a little bit more back from the Fed, from the Treasury, right, for those credits. So maybe they had $2,000 taken out in taxes, uh, tax withholdings, all right, is what it's called. And maybe at the end of the year when they filed their taxes, they got a $5,000 check back, and that's not unheard of. You see, so so these people already don't don't pay taxes. So you know they're not having you you cutting their tax rate doesn't really affect them because they're currently not paying anything anyway because they're not earning enough to to pay into the. Into no, that's the tax not true. Order. That they're not paying anything. What's income? What's 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 um sales tax? What's property tax? 
Well, th- that's that's an what? alternative type of tax. That's a that's a, what they call what we call in America, right? Sales tax and gas tax and all of that stuff. Right. Paying taxes. People are those taxes. Those taxes are indirect taxes that the government applies. All right, in order to fund uh, certain government functions. Yeah, you know, and uh, and the gas tax, for instance, goes into building roads and what have you. You know, and 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 uh, maintaining roads and and things like that. Mm-hmm. All right, um, the marijuana tax is a good thing. Uh, another thing, go is is supposed to go into programs, addiction programs, and what have you. And um, yeah, and and so hold on. So with the income tax, though, right? With the tax that gets taken out of your paycheck, right? Yeah, the payroll tax. The payroll tax, right? That can literally that would do more good right then when you're getting paid than it would at the end of the year. And you get like, depending on how much you work. So let's say you work a, a part time job, right? Let's say right. you work a part time job, two or three days a week. And you make like thirteen fifty an hour, right? Mm-hmm. And then your tax return is only like two hundred and seventy something dollars, right? Right. That's nothing. That's like one more paycheck. That's like if you worked an extra two days. That's like if you worked full time one week, right? That's not. That's not well, anything. Most people aren't getting like a ten thousand dollar tax return. No, most they're not. Are, they are getting. Most people are getting back. What they what was taken out of their check and payroll taxes, which is an average, um, so do twenty percent of fifty thousand dollars. Isn't no, but isn't the payroll tax that's you're the gonna rate. if the, if they if they accidentally take more, that's what your tax return is. No, if no, they take no, more money they than they were to, supposed to. No, no, that's not the way that works. The way that works is you you're, we, we deduct a percentage of your earnings based on a certain criteria for instance you know how many how many you work how much do you earn and how many people are you supporting in the household okay so your effective tax deduction can be anywhere between 15 percent and the average i would say is probably around 20 to 25 percent we'll say 25 percent now that's just for the federal the state takes out their percentage which is uh, in Massachusetts is five you know points three uh, percent or something to that effect all right then you have a social security taxes that are withheld you know um, which is uh, another smaller I don't know maybe seven percent or something to that effect okay so all of these taxes are, are going into someone now what do you get back when you file a tax return at the end of the year for your federal, you get back a portion of that money that was withheld from your payroll taxes if you earned below a certain amount of money. So for folks that are earning $20,000 a year or even $30,000 a year, for the most part, they're getting all of that back plus on top of that. All right, so let's say that they're being withheld at a rate of around 18% on the average for federal. Okay, they're getting all of that back. Plus, if they have uh, dependents under 18, all right, they're getting other tax credits, all right, that then boost that amount up. So the average person um, can get back 
thrice, three times, what was deducted from their payroll. Okay, because of the credits. Now, over the years, those credits have been dwindling, if you will, because of the changes in the tax code. But nonetheless, the person who got maybe $8,000 back one year, all right, is probably still getting $4,000 back, which is an amount uh, in excess of what was actually withheld from their payroll taxes. So what happens with poor populations is that they tend to use their federal government as a bank, all right? They get it back, and then, and then what they do when they get that refund check, they go out and spend it, right? They either buy a car or they pay off some bills or they go on a vacation or what have you, all right? The point being is that the money is being withheld, and in you know to what you were saying, it would be a better use for them to have it immediately and not have it withheld. All right, that's that's more than likely true. I'm just gonna say this because yeah. um, I don't know, man. Investopedia seems to disagree with you on what a tax return is. Tax return. I mean, I mean, I'll yeah, read. I'll read this definition right now. Mm-hmm. A tax return is a form or forms filed with a taxing authority that reports income, expenses, and other pertinent tax information. Tax returns allow taxpayers to calculate their tax liability, schedule tax payments, and or request refunds for the overpayment of taxes. In most countries, tax right. returns must be filed annually. And the problem is that most poor people are overpaying because what's being withheld, they get it back. See, and but no, but the issue is, back. but the issue is that you're saying that they're getting all of that money back. There's no they're, way that yes. they are. Oh, yes, they are. It's only from an overpayment because, in taxes. No, yeah, but on, but not everyone overpays because you have to be a, above a certain level of income, all right, in order to actually be paying, actually paying, having a tax liability at the end of the year. And I would venture to say that that amount is probably around $40,000, where you're actually paying into it, all right? And if anything, and, and maybe you're getting some of it back, if anything at all. I'll give you a classic example. A family of two earning approximately $70,000 a year, all right, may have an AGI, all right, AGI is adjusted gross income, which is what's actually taxed of around, so if they're getting, if they're earning 70, so maybe their adjusted gross income, um, if they have two dependents and they count themselves as well, so let's say it's a family of four, all right, um, their adjusted gross income could be 40000 or $30,000 less, okay? Um, so at the end of the year, they may get only a portion of what was withheld from their paycheck. But more often than not, when you exceed that amount, all right, what happens is that you 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 actually wind up having to pay more into it and you actually owe at the end of the year when you file your tax return. All right. But that's not most people. Most people are getting a portion of that back and and even a and those who are earning, I would venture to say that anyone earning $25,000 or less that, that has at least two dependents is getting all of it back and then some. 
Yeah, but how many people have two dependents? I don't know. That's, that's the thing. No, no, but that's the thing. And and you're yeah, saying it yourself. And you're saying it yourself. They're getting a portion back of what they gave. If of what of what right, they of what they had to. So right. that's still. So that's not paying zero taxes. You're getting taxes taken from your paycheck. What I'm right. Listen to me. What I said. I said that I'm venturing to say that anyone earning in excess of forty thousand dollars a year, mm-hmm. okay, it's getting only a portion of what they pay back, which then makes the statement about overpayment or overwithholding true. But most people in this country don't earn that amount of money. Mm-hmm. Okay, we just looked at the numbers and two hundred and. Plus two hundred plus million people earn twenty thousand dollars or less. What's their effective tax rate if they're a family of, of three? It's zero. So they're getting everything back that was withheld, and then they're getting credits because if they have children, they're getting credits for those kids. If they have other things that they can get credit for, all right. And and so eventually, what winds up happening is that they're getting what they put into. And then some back. And we're talking 200 million people earning $20,000 or less. So if we say, what's the effective tax rate for a family of... So so what's, what's the tax rate for a family of four or three? Let's say a family of three. Earning $20,000 a year which is most poor families fit that mold. Wait, okay. how many people did you say make less than thirty, less than $20,000 a year? According to the figures that, that, that were uh, shown, it, it says 200, $200 million. Because I'm seeing $200 million? Because yeah, I'm seeing that people, I'm seeing that even if you raise that to even thirty thousand or less, that's only that's only forty six point five percent of the population. Okay, so what's forty six point five percent of the population? Let's take your numbers, because obviously we're dealing with the you know we we would have to go into the government sites to get accurate numbers, right? Divide. Times equals. That's about 153 million people, but okay, we also so had I'm, to raise the. But we also had to raise the amount of money for less than by a third, uh, by by 50 percent of what it was. Why? Because we went up to 30,000. Because I went up to because I found because I found a number okay. for 30,000, not 20,000. Okay, so let's take 30,000 family of three. What is their effective tax rate uh, with that income? So they do get credit, you know, their adjusted uh, gross income or what is actually taxable income is reduced by the amount of rent that they pay on their state taxes, all right, is reduced by other factors as well. And so at the end of the year, they're probably paying nothing if they're a family of three or four. 
And actually, I had I did have the, the correct stats for for what people earn in America. I mean, you know, so what we don't want to do is split hairs here, but what we want to talk with realities. And the reality is that if you're earning $30,000 a year, the cost of living is what it is. Chances are that you're getting all of your money back in Benson. So if that's considered an overpayment of tax, it is because it was withheld and you didn't know it. So that would be constitute an overpayment. You're going to get it all back. And then you're going to get additional money back for whatever credits also apply. And that's the point. That's what happens with many, many, you know, hundreds of millions of American families. You know, even families that are making $50,000 a year, all right, if they're a family of four or five, the same would apply to them. They're not actually paying taxes. They're getting everything that they was withheld back. And then there's obviously other deductions that are, that are allowed that, that reduce their tax liability as well. You see? And so, yeah, the statement that, that you read about what a tax return is, is true. It's, it's over for overpayment. But then how many Americans overpay? But I guess you're you all... But, but that would be just for like... Let's say you have one person... Well, I guess... Well, the thing is then that gets more complicated than that. Because we just say like a family of three. Because we just say a family of yeah. So we can't deal in absolutes like that. That it's not an absolute. What I'm saying is, on average, on average, most Americans earning fifty grand or less a year that have at least two dependents. See, but now we just raised the price. Now we just raised the ceiling again. now we just I'm raise giving you the benefit of the doubt. If I lower it, if I lower the income, then they're definitely getting everything back. If I raise it, I'm, I'm, if I raise their income, I'm increasing the possibility of them actually owing money and not and only getting a portion of what the, what was taken out back. So I'm trying to meet your your the, you know points that you're trying to make here to sort of balance things out. And I would venture to say, based on my own tax experience, a family of four mm-hmm. over the past 20 years, mm-hmm. okay, um, half the time, half of those years, I got a refund, okay? Mm-hmm. And the other half, I didn't get a refund. And one time, the refund was so enormous, I was, uh, my jaw dropped. Wait, so your model only works 50% of the time then? In my case, but, you know, in our your income case. is a lot higher. Well, in our case, because our, our, in my case, our income is much, much higher. Our see, household see, income is, so, okay. our is Sorry. much higher. So you're only one person, right? No, no. no you, it's, I'm talking about the family, right? Our 1040 is done for the family. Right. Two, two dependents. Four dependents okay. total, four, or four people in the household total. Okay, and so, then if, but if two of your dependents work, right? Like I work, right? Right, but you can be claimed as a dependent, so you don't count like that. And I get claimed as yeah. a dependent, but I work, 
and I get taxed still and I'm right. and I'm only and I'm still paying and I and You're I get paying. my income tax, right? Right. I get my income tax and I'm still and I still get and I get a return, but I get less money than what I was right. than you what I why? was because you're, taxed. Because you're a single because you're a single person without dependents. Yeah, not everybody. So you're, so yeah, you're, but how many so how many people how many people have dependents who aren't working like one job and have and and right versus the people who don't have dependents. Okay, so let, let me ask let me ask this question. So so you so you so so that we're taking this and being a little bit more equitable. How many Americans family? Earning fifty thousand a year. Paid taxes. Right. And and look at the first thing that pops up for me on on, on this. So more than forty four percent of Americans Where is this? Staring at me right on the screen. This, this is, this is uh, the Tax Policy Center. This is from the Tax Policy Center, which is it, it's a it's a um, it's a government uh, a backed uh, research uh, outfit out of Washington D.C. And last year, February 26, they published all right uh, their estimates based on previous years of uh, tax filing. And they came up with the fact that nearly half of Americans don't owe a dime of federal tax. That's below the 50% peak during the Great Recession. But many low and middle average income families pay more in payroll taxes every year than, and then it goes blah, 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 but that's only because the tax code has been changed since. You see? But 40, 44% of Americans pay no federal income tax. 44%. So what's 44% of our population? That's a lot greater number than 150 million people, right? 40, okay, hold on. Uh, 44% of 330 million. Four four times 33, and this is from the Tax Policy Center, so I'm, I'm not making this stuff up. 145, oh, that's, we already kind of had this number earlier from something else. So 145 million people. Pay no federal income tax. Federal income tax. But that's only yeah. one tax. <laughs> right, well, that's the biggest See, but that's the issue, is that we have taxes built into everything, though. Right, but those are what they call they call the direct taxes all right that are that are slated for for certain projects so for instance uh, uh the transport you know the gas taxes related to to roads and bridges and that type of stuff you because know, without because without them collecting level, taxes but... who would ignore all the potholes that don't get ever filled <laughs> you see that's right. the problem that's the problem so Any tax is a problem. The rev, a revolution started in this country 
for a slightly oh, raised right. tax on tea. Right. Right? But now we get taxed on everything way more than they were getting taxed back then. Right. And, and, everyone, and everyone sits around and does nothing. So that's the thing. That's but the you thing. you know why they do nothing? Why? But you know why they do nothing? Because there's, Americans are still able to live above their means through other mechanisms, other social mechanisms, right? So so then here's the question. So then here's the question. Should we do nothing? Because if you're Uh, going to argue that we should... I think we should do something. Okay, so if you're going to argue that we should do something, right, about all these taxes and stuff like that, Mm -hmm. right, then the libertarian viewpoint that we don't need to have all these taxes and our money paying for things that some of us don't even have to use, right? If you're paying taxes on stuff you don't even have to use, then why are we paying taxes right. at all for anything? We shouldn't have to. Well, I think that's, a, that's, a, that's again, I don't agree with the libertarian view only because, all right, I believe that government has a, certain, uh, a role to play, all right? And, and I wouldn't want to live in a place, in a country, where, where we have uh, people on the street living on the street where you're handing, you know, uh, food out to because you want to help them uh, because there's no social network uh, for to help these people other than a charity. So then you see in front of all these churches these soup lines. So, yeah, here's a bunch of human beings being fed, all right, um, but, it's, but it's usually not a very good quality meal. All right, and, it's, and, and a lot of times probably the only meal that they get because that's the way it is now. You know, um, I, I, see, I, I just don't, don't, I have very little faith in human. But uh, here's the thing. No matter what we do, that'll always happen for any, anything. Yeah, but what extremes? For yeah, anything. What extremes, I think, is the, is the issue. So, um, so, for instance, if we, if we funded, um, if we funded mental health and um, and housing assistance programs adequately and created the mechanisms uh, for people to transition, all right, um, say from a market uh, cost home to a subsidized one because of their income, because they met the income guidelines, okay, and then we actually had a place to put them into, all right, then that market value home would be available to someone who can afford to pay it, okay? And the, 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 the family, all right, that can't afford to pay it wouldn't be struggling to pay rent, right, and could actually meet the federal guideline. Now, now the federal government was the one that established these guidelines that you shouldn't be paying more than 36% of your, of your annual gross income in rent. If that was the case in Massachusetts, that the, the, the rate the rents are going, you'd have to be earning one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. You know, mm-hmm. because if you go, because if you go in and want to rent every, I mean, you know, there's some towns obviously like the like the one we live in where the rents are a little bit lower. All right, uh, but but if you want to live in a in, 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 and, and not have uh, the criminal element around you and having to turn the corner or, or, you know, park your car outside and have your, you know, your mirror blown off every time you leave it out there or, or something, you know, something else going wrong or turning the corner and getting caught in a shootout, right? And you want to live.
live in a halfway decent community, you have to pay twice that amount of rent for the same size residence. And when you when you take that into account, so we, let's say that 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 uh, the average rent in a community like at like Andover for a two bedroom apartment is probably around closer to three thousand dollars a month. So, if you want to meet that federal guideline, you're going to have to be earning much more than hundred thousand dollars a year, so you can meet that thirty five percent. Again, I would say that. That, those are bad examples because that they cost a lot of money to live in those places, though. Right. So, so listen. The average new development, new development. All right. In our region, in our region as a whole, mm-hmm. when you look at what when you look at what they're charging for rent. All right. A, a one bedroom apartment, a one bedroom apartment, runs uh, between thirteen hundred and eighteen hundred a month. A two-bedroom apartment between 18 and 29, and a three-bedroom is a little bit more than that, mm-hmm. on average. On average, in Massachusetts, I'm talking about Massachusetts. Obviously, in other communities, it's cheaper. So you go down to North Carolina, for instance. All right, and a three-bedroom residence in a in a in a decent neighborhood, not a rundown neighborhood, but a decent neighborhood, is going to run you around $1,800 a month for a three-bedroom residence. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So, there's a, there's but you know what we also have in there, Massachusetts? But, what's that? A higher minimum wage than the average minimum wage. Okay. So everything costs so, more naturally because of that. Right, because of the minimum wage. Because but, yeah. But the, the, but the same holds true for everywhere else, right? Everyone's fighting for for an increase in the minimum wage because they're having a hard time making ends meet. You know, a lot of families are working two jobs and two and a half jobs. You know, yeah, on, on the coasts where 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 businesses are like strangled by the federal government, by the government in those states, right? But not in the middle of the country, where things just all cost less. millions of, of people 
and families, especially children. There's a 21% poverty rate among children in America. 21% poverty rate among children in America. I'm sure those children have parents, okay? Whether it be one parent at home or two, I would venture to say that most of them only have one, okay? And if that parent, say that that parent, uh, many of those parents obviously uh, don't work, and the ones that do are probably not earning much to begin with uh, for many reasons, right? Education could be one of them, okay? The, but the fact is that they're poor. And so we have to have a social network uh, that's, that's adequately funded to help these families. And how do you help them? You have to help them in, in, in you don't help them by simply handing them a check, obviously, you know, uh, because the problem is more complex than that. In order to, up to, t- to raise a family out of poverty, you have to do certain things. Education is one of them, all right? Uh, social supports are others. Uh, mental health is a, a plays a major role in that because a lot of a lot of these folks are suffering from traumas and and different things that happen in in their environment uh, when you're poor. You know, I mean, I can tell you um, from my own experience. I mean, I grew up poor in a housing project in New York City. You know, and and by by the age of twelve, I had seen things that I probably should have never seen or experienced in my life until I was an adult, and even then I probably shouldn't have experienced them. You know what I'm saying? But the point is that we need those social programs in order to help these families, and what we should be doing is having a mechanism built in. So a lot of people criticize this welfare-to-work stuff, right? But welfare-to-work has actually helped a lot of uh, families, uh, especially single women with children, um, transition off of the welfare rolls and actually go out there and become productive uh, members of society. Okay, so it's not a. It, it was. It, it, you know, a lot of people complain about it, but it actually has its good. Uh, you know, uh, facets, if you will. But I think that the issue is, how do we help people in a way that um, they're not permanently occupying? the lower economic stratus of society in every aspect of their life, all right? Meaning, what do I mean by that? Lifestyle, quality of life, education, okay? And everything that goes with it, because what we really need to do is find a way to, to raise uh, those families up. And, and education is really, really plays an important key, but if we're only training them to be PCAs, <laughs> you know, and, 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 and take care of patients at home and work, you know, so with, so healthcare is a growing industry, so what do, what, what do they do in poor communities? Or oh, we'll train them to be a PCA or, or to, uh, or to, I don't know, maybe do some janitorial work somewhere or, or to, or to become a, um, a secretary in a, in a healthcare uh, a clinic somewhere. But these are still jobs that don't pay large wages. And what we should be doing is training them in skills that, first of all, not everyone has the capacity, obviously, to, to learn uh, certain, certain things. Uh, but then but what you do is that you measure what it is that they can learn all right, by assessing these people, and then you track them into those industries or those jobs uh, for which they have a capacity to learn. 
and you and you get them the education that they need so that then they can move up into those jobs, right? Now, when they get out there to become productive human beings, they're, they're productive, but not at the lower end economic straters of society. They're actually earning a little bit more money. Maybe they, they go and they get an associate's degree and decide, oh, they, they, they like that education track and they can get a baccalaureate degree. And then by the time they get that baccalaureate degree, you know, they're entering social services or any other field of interest uh, with the capacity to do so. And that's really the whole point. But the way the welfare work, uh, to work works in America, unfortunately, right now, is that we, we're, we're tracking those people into, into the workforce, but at the lower economic uh, strata of that workforce. You know, and not really providing for them the vehicle so that they can move up. So that's one thing. Uh, so, so the reason why I bring that up is because I say that we need the social programs because uh, we need to have, uh, we need to support this, this this segment of the population in a way uh, that we can gradually build them up. Now, obviously, there's people in the population uh, for which you're not going to be able to do anything for because of mental illness or something else. And then there are the disabled, obviously, uh, people that are legitimate, legitimately disabled, that, that they can't enter the workforce for whatever the reason, it could be blindness, and, and that doesn't necessarily stop anyone, but we know the type of jobs that, that many of those folks get, and very few of them actually wind up in professional-level jobs, and so that's an issue as well. But we have, we still have to take care of that, that population, and, and so we have to, the money, uh, for the programs to take care of that population uh, of poor people in this country, which is about 40 million people in America, um, has to be there, has to come from somewhere. So we can't leave it to the human being to then decide, okay, so we don't get taxed, those programs all go away, and, uh, and then we'll leave it to the goodwill of Americans to take care of these other people, because it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen not to the degree that you need it to happen. And and uh, housing is a big issue. And we have people who are working, living in vehicles, even in Silicon Valley, earning seventy and $80,000 a year and living in a vehicle because they cannot afford to live in in the area where they work. So it's not only a, a, a problem for the poor, it's also a problem for the middle class now. And, and I believe that the only reason why, uh, you know, politicians are actually trying to find solutions to this is because it's not only the poor that's involved now, it's other people in society that are also caught up in that mess. People who are working, physically working, have a vehicle, can't afford a place to live and are forced to live in their vehicle. That's happening all over the country. It's a great and, and here we are in an expanding economy, you know, and, 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 and some of these folks, have, um, uh, you know, are, are earning decent salaries, yet they can't afford to live where they, where they work, you know. So, so when we talk about wealth distribution, again, another reason why I think it should be more, uh, a little bit more equitable, you know, and if we're not going to be equitable, all right, then we need the social programs in place to support not only those folks at the very, very bottom, but those folks at, uh, at, at the maybe an economic strata or two 
their some assistance, you know, in order to support their families adequately and, and, and live adequately, you know. I mean, I think that we can say from, from, from the experience of a lot of folks, all right, that, that a, a family, well, Massachusetts is a classic state. You could earn $85,000 a year here as a family. Two people working, the family earning 40 plus, or maybe one earns a little bit more than the other, but, but maybe the whole aggregate income of this family is 80 or $85,000, right? At the end of the year, they file a tax return, they owe money, okay? Um, and on top of it, they owe money, all right? Uh, they're already having a, a, a tough enough time trying to make ends meet because things are so expensive. You see? Mm-hmm. And so it's, a very, so it's a very complicated situation in America, right? Because we want to tell people around the world that America is the greatest country on the planet, right? It is certainly the, the wealthiest right now, okay? And that, and that we, we take care of our own. Right, but do we really take care of our own? I don't think so. I don't believe that. I believe that that the way things are set up right now, and and the changes obviously that I would call for is not for a change of the whole economic system, because I do believe that capitalism works. All right, um, but I but again, it works and it would work better if if we had maybe a different tax structure. Maybe maybe it's not zero tax. Maybe it's a flat tax that'll work alright uh, the other thing would be getting rid of loopholes alright that, that these big corporations have that they're, they're earning billions and billions of dollars alright but they're paying zero taxes period zero they're paying nothing you know so they're not they're not paying their fair share and if they were paying their fair share if one of these multinational corporations paid their fair share in taxes that would mean that many more billions of dollars in the tax coffers that can that can then go toward defense and can go toward education and can go toward the social programs that are needed. And if people were earning more, okay, then obviously earning more would be higher deductions, be it payroll taxes, be it even if you lowered the effective rate, okay, um, uh, be it social security taxes, all right, for retirement, all right. Mm-hmm. And that's not to, and, and, you know, and that would actually help fund all of these things that we that we currently have that that would be better funded or more adequately funded, if you will. All right, if we simply change the tax code to to not not to favor one group of folks versus the other, like like recently happened uh, during the, you know this this recent change in the tax code uh, last year, you know when. Uh, you know that the higher uh, the, the upper one percent of Americans, uh, you know, got uh, a, a sweet deal of of a combined a combined deal of about three. Uh, I think they said it was three trillion dollars. So one point five trillion was the tax cut that they got uh, the right away, and then the other the other one point five was going to come out of the the deficit. But yeah. So they, I, they really got a sweet deal. And was, then the lower half of the, uh, or the, from the middle class down, their actual tax liabilities went up. 
Mm-hmm. And so, so what we're saying is that the, the, the tax system and the, the tax structure, the way it is, is unfair, and it needs to be a little bit more equitable. You can actually use taxation as a mechanism to make things a bit more equitable if you if you manage that accordingly. But right now, the way it is, the corporations are the ones who dictate the tax policy. So right? okay, so I'm just gonna say we should probably wrap this mm-hmm. up because okay yeah because we've been going on for quite a bit so i think we both come down to we don't think how the tax policy in america is run right now is fair we probably have different ideas about how to go about fixing economic inequality in america Mm -hmm. and what can be done to sort of improve the livability of somebody who's poor, right? Poor relative to American standards because our poor is the best poor like of anybody else's poor. So there's also that to take into account. But uh, I don't know. Yeah. I guess I guess we can sort of agree to disagree. We're supposed to go into the debates and stuff, but I'm kind of running up against the wall of time. Talk about the debate? No. Okay. Well, well, you want to do that on Sunday? We'll do another episode for you guys. Are you doing sure, anything we'll on, do Sunday? on Sunday? Yeah, yeah. On Sunday we'll talk about the yeah. debates. Uh, yeah, we could do the debates on Sunday. So thank you guys for listening to this episode uh, about and, and write us, let us know if you agree or disagree with anything we said today. You can email us at a gooddeathfilms at gmail.com or you can send us an anchor voice message. There's a link. And, uh, yeah. I guess the big question to ask the public as they want to contribute to this is how would they go about fixing income inequality or wealth inequality and distribution in America? There you go. What are their ideas? There you go, guys. Well, we'll see you guys next time. And uh, that's a wrap. All right.